You think Jesus isn't present in the Eucharist? We got the proof. This is Dive Deep. From the Diocese of Springfield in Illinois, this is Dive Deep, where we dive deep into our Catholic faith. I am Andrew Hansen, coming to you today from the Diocese of Peoria. We are at Sacred Heart Church in the heart of the diocese in downtown, and that's because we're up here visiting Father Luke Spanigal from the Diocese of Peoria to dive deep. Father Luke, thank you so much for coming on. How are you? Very good. Glad to be with you. We are so pumped to have you because Father Luke is one of 58 national Eucharistic preachers who have been commissioned by the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops to enkindle the flame of Eucharistic faith and devotion in the United States. This is part of the nationwide Eucharistic revival going on now and also in the Diocese of Springfield that includes our Year of the Eucharist going on right now as well. Now, I had the privilege of hearing Father Luke speak in Springfield a few months ago and the stories he tells about these Eucharistic miracles are awesome. I'm like, I got to get this guy in the podcast because, <laughs> Father Luke, these stories are incredible. They're kind of, uh, I, I like to call them God slaps you across the face moments. I know that's sometimes maybe a little violent, but well, you know, it gets to the point. It's like, hell, hello, you guys don't think I'm present in the Eucharist? Well, whoosh, you know, I'm going to prove it to you. Um, so you have, you're going around the country telling these stories. Let's get right into it. There's three in particular that you talk about, and I know one focuses on Argentina. Happened, you know, historically speaking, very recent in terms of church history. It involves Pope Francis. So take us to Argentina, yeah. and, and let's start with this incredible Eucharistic miracle story down there. Absolutely, absolutely. Actually, there's uh, five different moments or, of miracles that happened in Buenos Aires, uh, 1992, 94, 96, and uh, they they involve. Um, what is typically one of the main patterns that we would see in miracles, which is uh, there's, uh, I would say it's related to reverence. Uh, so, you know, a host accidentally falls during communion. Uh, typically what would happen is that the deacon or the priest would just consume that host. But every now and then there's a situation where they're not able to do it. You know, maybe, a, um, you know, the host is, is dirty somehow or something. Uh, but because we honor the presence of Jesus, uh, that host is placed then in a little cup of water uh, which is typically by the tabernacle, a lot of churches. Uh, we have there uh, that for purifying the priest's fingers. You know, we believe that Jesus is truly present in even the smallest little particle. And so uh, we always try to be reverent there. So sometimes when it happens, uh, a host falls, or for some reason we're not able to consume the host, it would be placed in that little cup of water. And usually what happens is after, you know, 10, 12, 14 days, that host would dissolve and then that water could be poured out on sacred ground, uh, usually right under the church itself. But in the case here in Argentina, uh, they, they placed that host uh, that fell in the, the little cup of water. And after time, not only did it not dissolve, but it actually changed. Uh, kind of looked, uh, had the appearance like a, like a blood clot or like uh, some kind of a, a mass that, that, that was there in the water. And so as um, I, I remember hearing this story, so this changes and the priest is like, uh, okay. Um, and so I think he, he stuck it in the tabernacle and they didn't, you know, kind of go back to it for a long time until they're finally like, oh yeah, let's check it out. And thinking it would still maybe be dissolved. And it's actually, it grew, the flesh-like substance even grew. And that's when then Archbishop Jorge Bergoglio, now Pope Francis gets involved. That's right. Yes. Yeah. They, they fully expected that it would dissolve over time. And when it didn't, it certainly caught their attention. That was unusual. And then certainly the appearance was unique as well. And so, uh, yes, they, they decided to go ahead and have some medical examinations done, uh, which is um, not super common. It's happened a few times here and there with miracles. 
I think it's happening more often now in our, uh, the miracles that are more recent in history. Uh, but the, they'll, they'll bring in uh, a medical expert, sometimes a cardiologist, an oncologist, a hematologist, forensic medicine, and uh, they'll do several examinations with uh, a portion of that host. And uh, some of the findings are just unbelievable. And we're going to get into those findings. I'm going to set that up really quick yeah. because that's, we're going to pause that story because the other stories, the Eucharistic Miracle stories, they, set, they have a connection to some of those scientific findings. So now take us to yes. Italy and, uh, you know, kind of a, another Eucharistic miracle. I know this is where a priest was doubting the faith, but this, this Eucharistic miracle happened, what, 1,200 plus years ago? And, yeah, and- back in the 700s. Okay. Um, a monk who was celebrating Mass had doubts about the, the true presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. And that's another one of those common patterns that we see in miracle stories is that there is a, a doubt of faith. Uh, very typically, it's a priest himself. Who has some doubt of faith. And so uh, it was at that moment of the consecration in the midst of doubt, wondering if, if Jesus is really there, that the, the host changes to flesh and blood. And so, so in that moment, I know the priest also um, basically he had a, like a reversion in that sense, like, oh yeah, that's right, Jesus is truly present. And that is, you can still go there today in Italy, in Lanciano or Lanciano, Italy, mm-hmm. and the, it's, it's right up there, which is, which is also a miracle in and of itself because you can, I mean, again, this host is from you know, thou, uh, over a thousand years ago and no, no preservatives, and you can see that today. It is incredible. Some of the, the preservation of the Eucharistic miracles, I think, is an additional kind of miracle, you know, that uh, we know, especially, you know, if you think of any material thing, uh, but especially any kind of uh, food-related material thing, we know that, you know, everything has a shelf life and it's um, typically pretty short. So especially for uh, a Eucharistic miracle, a flesh and blood miracle uh, to, to maintain um, over all these uh, literally centuries. It's, it's really astounding. Yeah, it's an, it's an awesome story. And again, we're going to pause that story yeah. because that story has a, the medical has a connection to the, the, the miracle in Argentina. Okay, so the, mm-hmm. the third one you talk about in uh, when you're going out around the, the country and speaking about these miracles is Mexico. That's so, right. So take us mm-hmm. to that story. Yeah, Tixtla, Mexico. Uh, 2006, there was uh, a sister, a nun, who was helping to distribute communion, and she looked down into the ciborium, the container that holds the hosts during communion, and she saw that one had turned to a reddish color. And uh, similarly, they, they put that um, host in water uh, over time and kept it in water. And not only did it not dissolve, but, uh, but yes, the, the miracle continued. And, and what, what, what happened next after that? You remember? They had um, uh, medical experts look at it. I, I think, if I recall, there was some time that went by, and uh, I'm blanking now. It's either in Argentina or Mexico. They actually put that uh, sample of, of that miracle host in distilled water and kept it in there for some time. And uh, the medical experts were saying that uh, that distilled water was probably the worst possible choice. Because not only um, is there nothing there, but it certainly does not support the continuation of life. And what is really unique in those miracles is that um, when they do do the, the scientific uh, examinations, uh, in one case up to six years later after the miracle happened, they still find living tissue, which is um, a part of the miracle that it's really impossible that living tissue could, could survive, could maintain in that distilled water environment. So the fact that, that Jesus is there in a living way 
is another part of the miracle. Yeah, and these these, these medical findings, as you mentioned, is just they're they're eye opening. Um, let's dive a little bit deeper into these medical findings. You mentioned Argentina, maybe that was Mexico, but Argentina, I know uh, they found the white blood cells were yes. still alive, and as we know, white blood cells can't live outside of an organism for more than fifteen minutes, if I remember correctly. And so that yeah, again, to your point, this miracle happened when they studied it, you know, years and years ago, and mm-hmm. the guy looks at it and is like, uh, the sample you sent me is alive. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. They, in one case, so typically uh, they'll bring in a doctor or two and um, they will they do some examinations. And then what they've been doing in some of these miracles is they will also ask some additional medical experts to look at these miracles, but they don't tell them where the sample came from. And so uh, they're, they're really going in in a cold way uh, without any kind of preconceived ideas or notions. And in one case, uh, there was um, uh, a medical expert who examined the miracle and he said uh, that he saw that it was, it was human flesh. It was actually cardiac tissue, a heart muscle tissue. And he said that he could see that the cells had gone through trauma. And he said, I would often see this maybe if I was uh, looking at the cells of someone who's been in a car accident, for say, uh, someone who's had a severe blow to the chest. And then he said uh, that uh, he, he could say that this person must be in very severe suffering. And of course, they noticed that he said is in suffering. And, and when they followed up, he said, yes, that the actually the tissue is alive. You can see that the blood cells uh, still have that the characteristics of living blood. It's absolutely I mean, you, you hear that and that gives me, you know, tingles. It's like uh, it's so cool. Now, they, a lot of those connections to the Argentina and we mentioned there's the Argentina miracle. They had connection to Italy, the one that happened over a thousand years ago, because they also looked at Italy and found a lot of similarities in those scientific studies between Argentina and Italy, right? Yes. I think one of the most astounding things to me is how there's a consistency that you start to see in these medical examinations of the miracles. Uh, So very consistently, we see that it is true human flesh and blood, uh, that it really is uh, belonging to human um, we'll see that uh, the, the blood is living, uh, that has characteristics of living blood. You mentioned the white blood cells. Uh, they say that white blood cells can only survive outside the body for around 15 minutes. And so here in these cases where we have years and years that have gone by, it, it's, a, it's amazing. They also find that the, um, the, the sample is always a heart muscle, a human heart muscle. And they also find that the blood type is AB. Uh, which is very unique. Uh, AB, of course, is the most rare among all the blood types. And uh, the fact that those are consistently uh, coming up AB blood is something that uh, some of these uh, medical experts have taken note of as well. You know, I remember hearing about that AB blood. I always always thought Jesus's blood would be universal blood type, but I I guess I can see it both ways. You know, he's he's a unique guy, so to speak. Um, And and I know also we have um, the DNA from, at least from Argentina and Italy, or an exact match. Now, does this mean we have Jesus' DNA? <laughs> well, not exactly, yeah. They, they, they did find human DNA uh, present in the sample, uh, but they were not able to do a full sequence. Um, so they were looking into, some of this is, is stretching beyond kind of my normal uh, vocabulary and understanding, but they were looking into the mitochondrial DNA, which was, they were able to get a, a little bit of a fuller picture. I think it was in there that they started to see some characteristics, uh, for example, of maybe someone from the Middle East, um, but they don't have a full uh, sequence of the DNA. And uh, one of the experts who was reviewing these miracles and the examinations, he actually said that maybe God is protecting us a little bit in that sense. Uh, yeah, what would we do if we had the DNA of Jesus? Would somebody be out there trying to you know, clone Jesus or something? So 
Uh, the fact that there, there's maybe still some mystery there um, is something that maybe is significant to us. Uh, he went on to reflect, you know, if you think about it, half of the DNA that Jesus had came from Mary, uh, half comes from the Holy Spirit. So, you know, maybe in a real honest sense, maybe we don't know exactly what we're looking for when we look at the DNA of Jesus. So uh, he said, actually, the fact that we can't sequence it, maybe, um, you know, part of that we can't attribute uh, from our faith to understand that God is protecting us. You know, that in and of itself is a miracle because, you know, when you hear science, like we have the DNA, but we can't fully get to it. It's like, I've never heard that where, you know, anytime there's a crime scene or if, you know, you need you know, blood work or something like that, you know, yeah, we, they can get to the DNA. But in these examples, they just can't quite get there. It's true. Yes. Yeah. You know, and some, there are some practical things, you know, like um, how the samples have been, how, how the, the miracle host samples have been kept. Uh, for example, I mentioned that one in distilled water, or uh, certainly there's, there's time that's gone by, and usually there's kind of a degrading of DNA over time. And so um, those can be practical factors as well. And I swear I remember in your talk when you came to the Springfield, you mentioned there's also some connection to the Shroud, the Shroud of Turin as well, that, mm-hmm. that some research there kind of also paired the Eucharistic miracles with the Shroud. Do I have that right? Yes, yes. So there's a, a Dr. Serafini who has written a book called A Cardiologist Examines Jesus, and he goes into some of these uh, miracles that we've been talking about, the medical examinations, in great detail. So yeah, for anyone who's really into the medical analysis, it would be, it would be a good read. But he also mentions that uh, the, the blood work analysis had been done on the Shroud of Turin, who uh, which, of course, is um, you know, part of our pious history, tells us that that was the burial cloth of Jesus. They also had what was um, piously believed to be the head cloth that, that went over Jesus' head in his burial. And they also had a tunic that they um, believed belonged to Jesus as well. So they did the blood types on those, and those came out AB also. And uh, that's very significant to him because he said those miracles and, and miracles like Lanciano, Italy, they happened in history long before we ever knew what blood types were. Mm. And so for the fact that um, all these consistently come back AB blood, uh, he thinks is uh, another a boost you know, for our faith that tells us that this is real, that this is really Jesus. Um, he said if, if they were forgeries, because AB blood is so rare, only 1% to 5% of the world population has AB blood. Oh, that's it, 1% to 5%. Yeah. Oh, wow. Because it's so rare and because it wasn't known in history, uh, it would be like a one in 3.2 million chance that all these could be forgeries and that they would guess correctly each time and have AB blood. Uh, and that takes away, um, you know, from all these other obvious factors, like the fact that the blood is still living and uh, that without the pre- preservatives uh, that these miracles have maintained. So uh, even if you set aside that, even just from a chance standpoint, uh, it's pretty incredible to think about. Yeah, I, I, th- I think out of all, the, all the things in these Eucharistic miracles, to me, that is the most incredible of you get a sample and it's like, Hey, you gave me a living sample. Like, Oh yeah, this samples from, you know, decades ago. Mm -hmm. Um, so when you're going around the country telling these stories to, you know, again, you spoke at in Springfield to Arcuria, I know you're going to parishes and schools. What's the reaction you're getting? Are are people are like, uh, Oh my gosh, are you getting almost, you think some reversions or people are like, Oh yeah, I've been kind of doubting or, um, you know, I've I've been maybe going through the motions at mass and these, these, these stories are waking people up. I think so. I, I think that for me, that, that's maybe been one of the great fruits of the Eucharistic revival already is, you know, it, it's really a very purposeful opportunity to set aside time to reflect on the greatest gift that we have. And so what I often do in my talks is I will, I will talk about our core truths of the faith. I'll talk about 
how Jesus is truly present. I'll talk about how the Mass is the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross. I'll talk about how receiving communion draws us into unity with Jesus and one another, how it is a taste of heaven. And then I always talk about how Jesus has asked us for faith. Um, it's what he always does uh, all through the Gospels. He always asks us to make a response of faith. It's what he asks of us. Every time we're there at the Mass, our faith tells us that the bread and wine becomes the very body and blood of Jesus, that those words of Jesus at the altar, that there's a real change that happens. And of course, normally, we, we don't see anything different. Um, the, the host still looks the same. Uh, the wine would, would still look and taste the same. And yet our faith tells us that something different has happened. And so I think what's really helpful with the miracles is that they at times show us very concretely, very physically, what our faith tells us is always true, that Jesus is really there. And so I think especially these, these that have been medically examined, I think they really do boost our faith and they remind us to look deeper and not just to look at the surface, not just to take a quick glance and say, oh, it still looks like the host up there, uh, but to really look deeper with the eyes of faith and to remind ourselves, you know, we believe Jesus. If Jesus says this is true, we believe it's true. If, if Jesus can change water into wine, if Jesus could walk on water, if Jesus could raise Lazarus from the dead, we believe he could do this, uh, that he could change his very uh, body and blood uh, in, in that host there, that he could become present for us. Have you had any people come up to you afterward that, that says, you know, you, you shocked me back into belief or any, any, anything that people have come to you and, and spoke to you about their coming back to the faith or back to the believing? I've, I've had a lot of comments. I, I would say probably most common in, in talks that I've given, uh, you know, most, most places, uh, you know, a church says, hey, we're going to have a talk on the Eucharist tonight. You know, it's mostly your, your good, faithful people uh, that are coming to those. I've had a few uh, where there was someone who was just curious or uh, maybe someone who had been outside the faith but was curious. Uh, but for the most part, you know, we're talking about, you know, our, our typical people that are in the pews on Sunday. And what I've seen from them and heard from them is, is this kind of renewal. You know, it's, it's um, a realization, uh, again, not to go through the motions, but uh, to really recall very vividly that Jesus really is there. And then, of course, that affects everything. It affects how we prepare for Mass, how we pray in the Mass, how we, how we are reverent how we share the joy of the presence of Jesus with those around us, how we invite family members that maybe, you know, we've said, you know, maybe our family member has kind of slid off, you know, in terms of regular mass, and we don't want to get into it. We don't get into an argument. We just kind of let it go. But people have said, you know, I, I'm renewed. I'm strengthened. I realize this is a gift that we shouldn't miss, that we can't miss. And so I'm going to have that conversation again. I'm going to invite that person again, uh, knowing that it's worth it and knowing that, that Jesus is really there, and knowing what that can mean for not only this person, but for our relationship together. Now, I remember in Springfield, you also told this really sweet story about a girl, Agatha. Now, this is not a, a miracle story about, you know, uh, so, so I guess I'm not going to set it up anymore. Take us there to, to yes. the story you heard about this sweet girl and, and what happened and what it ultimately can teach us. Yes, yes. Um, Agnes, yes. Agnes, sorry. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> it was a story that was from the Sisters of Life magazine uh, back in the summer. And uh, so this, this um, little girl, Agnes, and this lady took her to Mass. And she was being kind of difficult, uh, feisty, uh, restless. And the lady recognized that maybe the little girl wanted to sit somewhere else. And so she said to her, where do you want to sit? And the little girl went out in the aisle, and she went down the aisle, right up the steps, right to the sanctuary, right by the <laughs> altar. And of course, the woman panicked. You know, what if she causes a scene or is a distraction? But the priest... 
uh, who knew them said that it was okay as long as she was quiet. And the little girl sat there quietly all through the mass until the moment of the consecration uh, when the priest said those words of Jesus, this is my body, and holds the host up above the altar. It's in that moment that the little girl starts to say, hi, <laughs> hi, hi. She starts to blow kisses. And uh, the lady at first thought maybe someone in the congregation was signaling to her, but then she realized, no, she sees Jesus. And uh, I think the story says that she continues to say, I'm high through communion. And then uh, when the priest takes the remaining host back to the tabernacle after communion, then she says, no more. (laughs) It is such a sweet story. I mean, the innocence of that story, it's amazing how, you know, children teach adults every day. What's, you know... The sweetness and innocence of that story, but what is that? What is that message for us? Absolutely, yeah. I, I think it to me that story always refreshes the joy of realizing that Jesus is really there, and I think it's true. I think sometimes children can see much more clearly than adults can. You know, we have uh, certainly the burdens of life. Uh, maybe there's a weariness or a tiredness, you know, that keeps us from being attentive. I think in some cases, maybe our own pride, our, you know, the the life that we lived, everything that we know. Maybe we're not as open to awe and wonder. Uh, I think sometimes our own sin, you know, it clouds our vision. It keeps us from seeing as clearly. So for me, I think the challenge of that story is not only, uh, it it is a very sweet recollection of of the true presence of Jesus, what it means to really see him there. Uh, But certainly also, I think it's a challenge for us uh, that if we do have those obstacles of faith, if we do have uh, those parts of our lives, our lived history, if we do have those things that bring cloudiness to our vision, uh, to really recommit, you know, to the, the freedom that Christ offers through the sacrament reconciliation, of course, through life in the church, life in the sacraments, to really refresh what it means to be able to see him and be strengthened by his true presence. Yeah, I know, I know you've written in the past, you've said that it's the perfect worship of God, it's our foretaste of heaven, it's a sacrament of healing and unity and communion, the most nourishing thing we can do. Um, I remember seeing this video, I don't know if it was EWTN, but about, you know, they kind of visualized all the saints and angels around the altar at the consecration. And then, you know, they had Jesus up on the, uh, up on the cross dripping blood and it fell in, into the chalice. And that's another thing that I think as Catholics, we, we forget because you can't see it. But talk about how heaven on earth, heaven literally comes to earth at the consecration. And while we can't see it, I mean, there are choirs of angels around the altar and the saints are there. I mean, this it literally is heaven right here in front of us. Yes. Yes. So true. And I, I recently was traveling back to um, one of the parishes where I had served at, and there was a, a picture of me there celebrating the mass at the, at the elevation, holding the host above the altar. And uh, there was a woman who stopped me and said, I want to, I want to tell you something. And uh, she had a family member who has really been through a lot of struggles, had been away from God, away from the church. And uh, she's been praying so fervently you know, for that soul to come back. And uh, at one point, um, she brought that family member to church and, and uh, the person saw that picture and just said, this is where heaven and earth meet. Um, just pointing to that moment in the mass. And I thought it was such a, a powerful truth uh, that really penetrated that person's heart. Uh, what a great gift. And yeah, several saints have had visions of the mass where you can see all the choirs of heaven they're participating. Uh, I think if we, if we think about the Mass in that way, I think reading the book of Revelation, uh, there's the description of the heavenly worship, and you can see so many elements that make us realize that it, it really sounds a lot like the Mass. It looks like the Mass. It, 
Yeah, there's the singing, the incense, the prayers, the kneeling, the amens. Uh, there, there's really a picture there of, of how heaven, heavenly worship and how we enter into it through the Mass. And of course, it's all possible because it really is Jesus, because Jesus is one. Jesus as God, of course, is not limited by time and space. That's why uh, Jesus is fully, truly present in every tabernacle, at every Mass, uh, but also all through history. And so it really is uh, a great gift of the Mass that unites us to Jesus and unites us to one another, not just those who are there at the Mass, not just those who are at Mass that day, but all time and place, including all those faithful that have gone before us, including all uh, the, the, the heavenly host. Uh, so one of my favorite things to reflect on is how the Mass helps me to feel close uh, with especially family members that have gone before us. I had a sister who died of cancer 11 years ago, and uh, sometimes I will think, you know, 11 years is a long time. Maybe, uh, you know, am I starting to kind of forget her a little bit, you know, how she would talk or um, how she would laugh, how, what her singing would sound like. But it's in the Mass that I actually feel the closest with her uh, at the moment at the altar when Jesus is truly present. That's a moment where she feels close by. Uh, it's a moment where it's easy to kind of picture uh, what, what she would be like, you know, singing in the choir of heaven. Uh, singing along with all the angels. It makes me uh, feel like that distance of, of years and uh, time and grief, it makes me feel like that distance is not there. Uh, so it's, for me, it's one of my favorite meditations on the Eucharist, how Jesus unites us to himself and to one another uh, through all times and places. Now for us at Lay Catholics, as you know, you tell all these stories and, and, and what you just said, said right there, it really is like, yeah, this is, this is go. It really inspires us. But of course, as human beings, sometimes we may kind of, you know, go through the motions a little bit sooner rather than later. What's your, what's your advice? What's your tips for us lay Catholics who, who do believe, but maybe go through the motions or, you know, whether it's how, how should we prepare for mass better, or is there some scripture we should be reading or something we should be meditating on? So, so we do, it becomes more of a habit. Mm-hmm. So we don't fall into a, uh, you know, a place where we eventually just kind of go, yeah, I believe, but, you know, you kind of go through the motions. What's your advice and tips for us? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that I talk about pretty often is uh, the Mass as sacrifice, uh, the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, the perfect worship of the Father, and, of course, our invitation to participate, uh, that Jesus has invited us also. You know, he's asked us to take up our cross. He's asked us to also follow him. And so we're invited, actually, into participation in that perfect worship of the Father, the perfect sacrifice of the Father. So we have an opportunity, every time we come to Mass, there's an opportunity for us to offer our prayers, our sacrifices in union with Jesus. And so there's a couple of times, I think especially to really focus on that. At the beginning of the Mass, we always have that, the, the collect, the opening prayer. Uh, we call that the collect. And even uh, the priest's uh, hand gestures there, you know, he, he looks like he's collecting, uh, gathering all the prayers together. When he says that, let us pray, uh, there's a little pause there in the Mass. And that's an opportunity for us to unite whatever's on our hearts that day. Uh, maybe it's an intention. Maybe it's something we're hoping for, we're thinking about. Uh, maybe it's, it's a sacrifice that we're going we're gonna to offer in union with Jesus. You know, I, uh, you know I've been fasting you know, for this specific purpose, you know, to help um, you know, overcome a, a sin in my life. Or I've got a family member who's sick, and I've been offering sacrifice and prayers, you know, for that person, for their recovery. I'm going to offer it in that moment in union with Jesus in the Mass. Because, because the Mass is the ultimate prayer. The Mass is the ultimate perfect prayer. Uh, sometimes I say, you know, I don't know, I think a lot of people think about this. You know, do I really pray well or do I know what I'm doing? Do I, do I say it the right way? Am I doing the right thing? 
the mass is one place where we can be confident that we're praying perfectly because it's the perfect prayer of Jesus. And we're, when we're united with him, then it's a perfect prayer. Uh, we could really be at peace in that moment. Uh, so what does that mean? It, you know, it means responding. It, it means paying attention our, our, the best we can. It means uh, through our reverence, through our gestures, uh, really uniting with the prayer, uh, uniting the sacrifice we bring uh, with the prayer. And so, yeah, so I always invite people, especially at the beginning of Mass, you know, put your prayer, put your sacrifice there in union with Jesus. And then there's another time to do it. Uh, it's at the offertory. As the bread and wine are brought to the altar, that's a place where we can uh, very practically, you know, imagine placing our sacrifice there on the altar with the bread and wine. Uh, Mother Teresa used to talk about that, that she would say that uh, she would envision putting her heart there on the patent, the little gold plate um, that holds the host that the priest uses at Mass. She would envision putting her heart there so that it would be next to Jesus, that it would be in union with Jesus in that, in that offering, in that sacrifice. You know, I'm so glad you said that because I would imagine the vast majority of Catholics who even go to Mass maybe aren't even thinking about, I have an opportunity to offer something, a need, or for someone else in that moment, or, you know, to come to Mass. And, you know, obviously we go to Mass to receive the body and blood of Jesus and to be connected with Him. It's a, it's a commandment, but there's also, you know, I think what you just said is important. There's something that you can, you can bring to Jesus, and as you said, the ultimate prayer, um, you know, what, what better way than to bring that to Mass? Uh, let's get out of, I'll get you out of here on this one, Father Luke. So if you had to kind of sum it all up, you know, what's, what's the conclusion? What's your, what's your ultimate message for us lay Catholics as we go through this Eucharistic revival and you're traveling the country talking about these Eucharistic miracles? Yeah. I, you know, I think, um, I think it's an invitation. Uh, to, you know, one of the great hopes of the revival is really an invitation just to renew, to grow our faith. And so I'm really encouraging people, especially to concentrate on that encounter with Jesus. You know, give yourself that opportunity to be in the presence of Jesus. Uh, yeah, certainly at Mass, you know, uh, set aside some time for adoration. You know, look upon Jesus with the eyes of faith. Let his gaze fall on you. Uh, you know, when, when Jesus looks at us, he brings clarity to our hearts. And when Jesus looks at us, he helps us to see those parts of our lives that need work, uh, those, those things that are holding us back. And he gives us the strength uh, to fight that good fight. He gives us the strength to, to go through it. So I've been encouraging people, you know, uh, do what you can. You know, stop by, you know, the church on the way to work or after. And, and even if you're not able to get in, you know, sit there in the parking lot knowing that the true presence of Jesus is just right there, just through those doors. Um, you know, one of our patrons of the revival is Blessed Carlo Acutis, a young Italian teenage boy. He died of leukemia in 2006. And uh, a normal guy, you know, friends, sports, school, uh, loved animals. Um, but yet he also had this great love for Jesus truly present. And uh, he would stop by the church on the way to school and on the way home uh, to have a visit. He would, he would try to go to daily mass when he could. And the fruits uh, of that time with Jesus are amazing. Uh, the more we spend time with him, uh, the more we spend uh, that, that, uh, that unity with him through Holy Communion, uh, the way that we're strengthened by his true presence within us, the more our hearts become like his. And so it isn't just going through the motions. You know, if uh, I, I want to be a, a more patient person, um, and I just kind of say that, but nothing ever happens. If I'm really concentrating on that union with Jesus, and I am doing my best to respond to the grace of his true presence in me, my heart is going to become more like his. You know, I'm going to become uh, better at loving those around me. I'm going to become more generous. And so uh, what we really have here is, I think, an opportunity to refresh. All those ways that, you know, our, our regular Catholics 
you know, maybe wish that they were better. You know, those few times a year when we stop and think about it, maybe Lent, maybe Advent, you know, those things that I really need to improve on. We really have the strength to do that right before us. Jesus truly present. And so faithful receptions of communion, uh, faithful times of prayer, uh, and confidence that the true presence, that Jesus is really there. And what that means is that through my union with him, I'm going to become more like him. Uh, the, more, the more closely united I am with him, the easier and the better uh, that faithful life is going to be, uh, the more joyful it's going to be, and also the more hopeful I'm going to be for the kingdom of heaven. You know, I'll never uh, have to be in anxiety or fear if I'm, if I'm striving to live in union with Jesus. I know that he's there with me. I know he's going to strengthen me for whatever's in front of me. Be not afraid. Amen to that. Excellent. Father Luke, good stuff. Thank you so much for coming on Dive Deep. This was really fascinating, and uh, we appreciate your, you, you, you know, allowing us to come up here to Peoria and, of course, you know, talking about these great things around our country. And uh, keep up the great work. Thank you. Thank and you. Great being with you. This has been Dive Deep. If you would like more podcasts, head on over to dial.org slash podcast. If you'd like to give to Dive Deep to financially support us, go to dial.org slash give. And until next time, we'll see you right here on Dive Deep. <laughs>